for joining us here at the Cato Institute. My name is uh, Julian Sanchez. I'm a senior fellow here, uh, and I work on uh, a range of issues at the uh, intersection of uh, technology, privacy, uh, and civil liberties. Uh, we're here, uh, of course, to discuss the uh, highly contentious question of bias on online platforms. If you spend any time at all on social media, you will uh, no doubt encounter uh, any number of people uh, on the left, right, and elsewhere in uh, political possibility space complaining that uh, their views are uh, especially disfavored um, by the platforms. But in particular, we've heard uh, in recent years that complaint most uh, loudly, I think, articulated by uh, conservatives who are, for a variety of reasons, persuaded that uh, Silicon Valley firms um, treat them in various ways more harshly. Um, and so there's a question of, of course, whether or not that's the case, and also um, whether there is an appropriate uh, political or policy response to that fact, since after all, um, traditionally we accept that uh, news channels and newspapers, magazines, other forms of media um, will have <coughs> some form or another of orientation or bias, uh, exercise editorial judgment in uh, what views they choose to highlight. Um, and so there's a question of, is there a, is there a sort of factual problem? Uh, as well as whether, if there is a problem, um, there is an appropriate policy remedy for it. Uh, a lot of folks have focused on using uh, the uh, liability safe harbor under Section 230 uh, as a kind of mechanism for compelling um, uh, platforms to uh, enact effectively a policy of ideological equity um, although, of course, again, the details of how that would work and be enforced uh, are uh, a thorny problem uh, worth being discussed. Um, just recently, uh, as many of you will be aware, uh, the uh, uh, online advocacy group uh, Prager University uh, <coughs> sued uh, YouTube for uh, classifying some of its videos as uh, restricted for um, uh, people who had sort of child safety settings turned on. Um, arguing that uh, YouTube had essentially violated their First Amendment rights, a, uh, an argument which did not fare terribly well because uh, YouTube is not the federal government, um, uh, but which uh, they may appeal. And there are a number of other grounds on which uh, they may continue fighting. And of course, if those uh, suits are unsuccessful, uh, there's a growing pressure on Capitol Hill um, to try and uh, essentially enforce a kind of quasi-First Amendment principle of neutrality on uh, platforms that are not subject to uh, the First Amendment's uh, uh, strictures. So to discuss this topic, we have, I think, a, a fantastic uh, panel here. Um, to the far left, we have uh, Ash Kazarian, uh, who's the director of uh, civil liberties at Tech Freedom, as well as an internet law and policy fellow at IP Foundry. Um, to her right, uh, we have uh, Craig Parshall, who's special counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, <coughs> as well as general counsel uh, for the National Religious Broadcasters, and the founder of the John Milton Project for Digital Free Speech. Uh, to his right, uh, we have uh, Professor Adam, Adam Kandub, a professor of law and director of uh, IP, uh, the IP Information and Communications Law Program at Michigan State University. And then uh, to my immediate left, we have Eric Goldman, uh, professor of law and co-director of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University School of Law, as well as a uh, prolific and influential blogger at ericgoldman.org uh, and author of many papers uh, on uh, uh, Section 230, uh, some of which you can find on the table uh, directly outside. Um, so it seems like the natural place to begin here 
uh, is, you know, before getting into the question of remedy and uh, legal posture is, what is the reason to believe there is a problem here? Um, you know, anytime a platform engages in any kind of content moderation, there will naturally be people, um, rightly and, and wrongly, um, who don't agree with those moderation decisions, who feel uh, hard done by, um, and, you know, no moderation system is going to be perfect. Um, but what is the reason to think that there's a sort of systemic problem so severe um, that we should be talking about policy correction? Um, this is something, uh, quite partially, you've tracked through uh, the John Milton Project for Digital Free Speech. Can you speak a little bit to, to why we should think there is a serious problem here? Thanks, Julian. Uh, I started in 2010, a little bit before that, actually, because uh, just as a project uh, for uh, my work as a general counsel for NRB, I was interested in what the uh, community standards and community uh, guidelines for each of these big tech companies were. So we, I had some law clerks and I work on this, and we reviewed all of them, and they had a lot of things in common, like a ban on hate speech, like basically telling the user, uh, we'll decide whether we like your opinion or not. So I saw a potential problem. And then about six months later, uh, November of 2010, was the first uh, widely known incident of clear viewpoint uh, suppression, which was Apple taking the Manhattan Declaration, which Chuck Colson had co-authored. And it was just kind of an orthodox statement of, of what Christianity says about family, uh, conservative Christianity, biblical Christianity, about uh, family, marriage, religious liberty, sanctity of life from his perspective. But a small contingent of gay activists said, no, we don't like that, and they petitioned Apple, and Apple was more than happy to take it down. Take it down from, from where? Uh, from the, its app store. Okay. So, so the iTunes app store, and there was 425,000 apps at the time, but they focused on this one because apparently that had generated some controversy, so they, so they removed it. Shortly after, um, Facebook, Google followed, within, within a year, I was noticing a number of these enough where I decided to track them. I have to tell you, for a decade, uh, and I'm not going to enumerate everything in 10 years, but I've seen a consistent series of dots. After a while, you connect the dots, and it creates a picture. So as an example, bringing it kind of current, Julian, uh, I, I dis uh, distri distributed my uh, report called uh, Choke Point in uh, the fall of last year. And it, within the eight months or so before that, I decided to cull together some more recent instances of censorship. Uh, so I looked at Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, and Apple, which I think are the big monopoly platforms that have the biggest problem. And I found, uh, for instance, uh, a New Testament scholar being banned because uh, he didn't use the politically correct terminology for uh, gender identification. Uh, I saw a quote from uh, Augustine, one of the greatest theologians in history, regardless of where you're coming from theologically, uh, a post being banned because they included a a uh, hate speech quote supposedly from, from Augustine. Uh, I saw uh, on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, um, a picture, it was a cartoon, of Santa Claus kneeling at the manger of the baby Jesus at Christmas time being banned uh, as potentially violent con uh, content. So these are the kinds of uh, episodes that I have seen enough consistently across the board from all of these platforms to conclude I see a problem. Now, the bigger issue, though, Julian, is not you know, my perception. It's the Covington Law Firm here in D.C. when Facebook said, we want an outside policy audit. Do we have a problem here? And one of the things, in fact, the conclusion that the Covington Law Firm came to was that, in their words, there is a real danger 
for free uh, expression suppression by the practices and policies of Facebook and others. Now, this is their outside conclusion. Uh, more than half of Americans uh, who are registered to vote uh, have been polled, and they say they believe, uh, whether or not you believe it's hype or not, they believe that there is an anti-conservative bent to, um, uh, to, to, to the viewpoint uh, activity that's going on. And, of course, we have Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress under oath saying, look, you shouldn't be surprised Silicon Valley is extremely left-leaning. So now they're entitled to be left-leaning or right-leaning or any direction. But if they maintain a monopoly over what are now the new channels of inf instant information and opinion and viewpoint, which are our user-generated opinions, then I think it moves the ball from the private sphere of a private newspaper saying, we have editorial control, we're not going to print your letter to the editor, to a new species of free uh, speech dialogue. So I think that it's time for action. I think 230 has to be adjusted, not eliminated. Um, Section 230, which gives you know, legal immunity to almost all lawsuits to these tech companies, whether they're large or small. I think the big ones are the problem. All right. Um, well, so let's uh, pivot from that uh, and, and uh, hear from uh, Professor Kandub. Um, is there something different about these platforms that justifies uh, a different uh, legal treatment? If you know, someone said, I couldn't get my views published in the New York Times because they disagree with me, we'd say, well, that's, that's your tough luck and look for somewhere else. Um, but you know, certainly there's a relatively small number of platforms that have a, an outsized uh, share of eyeballs. Um, does that create a rationale for a different approach than we have in other media spheres where we say, yeah, you know, editorial bias is a thing, and if you don't like it, you go somewhere else. Well, I think the problem is, and I think there are two layers of issue. One is, are the social media platforms the dominant ones, sort of like the telephone company, and that they have a dominant role um, in our communications, um, and that the personal preferences of their owners will have a disproportionate effect upon public discourse? That's one level of question. The other level of question is, oh, you ask, are they different? Well, they already are, not because of their nature of their technology that they use, but because of the legal privileges that are granted in Section 230. Section 230 is a grant of extraordinary legal immunity to these platforms. It was granted in 1996 for the express purposes of helping the nascent um, internet industry like Prodigy, not these huge behemoths. Um, but these are privileges that newspapers, bookstores, other media companies don't enjoy. So the real question is, how do we read these privileges that were not intended for these huge companies, were not envisioned and given to Congress, um, that Congress didn't intend to give to these companies that play such a pivotal role in our public discourse? How do we interpret these extraordinary protections? Um, and um, one of the problems is, is that the courts have just gone insane on Section 230, expanding its protections beyond anything conceived by Congress. Um, and I think that's sort of one first step we have to do, is sort of to ratchet it back so that um, you know, the richest, most powerful companies in the world don't get extra special privileges that the New York Times does um, or a bookstore doesn't. And I think that's, the, the, that's a very important um, first step. So let me uh, and turn to the two of you to, to respond. I know you have a, a somewhat different view, I think, of, of, of 230. Do you, would you uh, agree with this characterization of, of 230 as a kind of privilege for a small number of, uh, of, uh, of tech platforms? 
you could give a fine well, fault tech platform. It's not a small number of platforms, all tech platforms. Um, if you don't mind, actually, I do want to talk a little about some of the nomenclature here because it's a lot of um, uh, carefully picked words um, that I think need to be exposed um, for and considered. Um, one, are we talking about state actors? Um, and I haven't heard that from my uh, co-panelists yet, so I'm going to assume that we're not talking about state actors. So we know that we're not talking about First Amendment obligating uh, the companies that we're discussing to respect uh, um, uh, uh, the obligations that the government would have. Um, and we also uh, are talking about um, uh, content moderation by platforms. And I'm actually okay with the content moderation phrase. I don't like the phrase platform. But I'm going to redefine this. Say we're talking about the editorial decisions of publishers decide what content they're willing to publish, um, or what content they want to change uh, uh, and stop publishing. Um, and once we frame the question that way, then we start to realize that uh, questions about monopoly, for example, don't really change the answer. We might address the monopoly, uh, the market power problem, but we don't change the editorial practices of publishers. That's absolutely anathema. That's actually what the First Amendment restricts. And so there's a bunch of things that we could not do once we accept the model that we're talking about the um, uh, publication of content from third parties by internet uh, uh, publishers. Um, th that leads us to the Section 230 question, which is Section 230 says internet publishers get a different class of liability treatment uh, than other types of publishers. Um, there are other models where publishers are not automatically liable for the third-party content that you publish. That's not unprecedented, but no question that Section 230 goes further than most of the other models that we've seen. Um, and that's now a policy choice that actually is incredibly defensible. We realize why Congress made that choice. It wasn't to, um, uh, 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 just because the internet uh, community was small um, and uh, needed to be fostered, it was because we didn't know where technology would go. We, can't, we couldn't anticipate what new um, uh, social interactions would be created by the technology. Um, and we were concerned about barriers to entry, that if we had the, uh, uh, a higher level liability, we would have higher barriers to entry. Um, and we were concerned about what's called the moderator's dilemma, that if companies undertook the socially valuable work of policing third-party content, of deciding what was fit to print or not, that they would choose not to do so for, because of the fear of being liable for whatever they missed, whatever mistakes they made being um, uh, business ending. Um, all those rationales still apply. They apply to Google and Facebook. They apply to the thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of other entities that are protected by Section 230. Um, so the rationale hasn't changed. Um, the fact that uh, Google and Facebook are uh, now uh, giant companies that mint money doesn't change how we should think about Section 230 unless you think we've reached the end game of the internet, and this is how it's going to look forevermore. There is no innovation left. There is no new competitors emerging, and I just don't buy that. Yeah, if I could just oh, jump. I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, if I just not uh, spoken yet. Tennis women's right? Do you want special treatment here at Cato? Is that allowed? I don't know. Hasn't spoken. Okay, fair enough. not spoken, and it's the only token woman. We should hear from Ashkan. Okay, so let's start with the monopolies claim. Actually, the White House itself released, the Council of Economic Advisors released an economy report where they said that the tech monopolies are not really monopolies, and they're actually helping the economy and not hurting it. And I believe to release that report, you have to vet that report with every agency under you. Um, so that's number one. Number two is it's very interesting to me how um, I don't think 
this distinguished gentleman would mind that a baker would say no to a gay couple or that a company on their religious beliefs would not pay for birth control of their employees. But uh, somehow we make a very fast jump uh, when it comes to a company that's uh, for once an industry staffed with more liberals than uh, conservatives, whereas most of the major industries like oil, banks, insurances are all very much Republican donors and conservatives, which I don't mind. But uh, it's funny how we're getting an industry singled out. Um, third thing is that there is no empirical data. So you can connect the dots on anecdotes, but there is no empirical data proving that there is any bias uh, against conservatives. The one study that the Wall Street Journal quoted, I believe, um, it had a list of people Twitter banned, and it was the American Nazi Party, Richard Spencer, and other folks who I honestly am OK with not being on Twitter, and is the reason I am still on Twitter. Um, the Economist did a study, and they looked into search results of news uh, papers and other news sources and how Google would rank them. And they found that it wasn't based on the political viewpoint. It was based on relevance and authority that that news source had. Um, all of that said, even if there was bias, um, why is that a bad thing? It's, again, a private company. And um, I believe Don Jr. Uh, has said that he wants to create TrumpNet, uh, Facebook for Trump conservatives. Uh, if these rules applied, that would not be possible. And I believe with your uh, broadcaster's experience, you'd remember uh, the Fairness Doctrine, uh, which was passed. And uh, back in the day, it kind of required broadcasters uh, to be uh, giving equal time to all the political viewpoints. And what happened was actually the religious broadcasters, especially, I believe, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the opinions, the radical opinions on both sides were the ones who were completely left out. And uh, President Reagan vetoed it. So it's very mind-boggling to me that now conservatives are asking to big, for big government and to regulate speech when just a few decades ago they realized how hurtful that would be to free speech on, everywhere. Uh, Adam, I, I know you wanted to respond, but I think you were directing your comment to me, and I'll be glad to talk about that red herring because it is an entirely empty uh, analogy. Uh, what happened during uh, the, the bad old days of the FCC, when they tried this experiment uh, with the Fairness Doctrine, which was intrinsically unfair, is they took content providers. Broadcasters are content providers. They're not just a printing press uh, that distributes somebody else's news. They were content providers themselves. They were then required to match their content with an, a, a, a universal uh, opposing voices, which made it impossible, so they just shut down opinion. Uh, which was not good for free speech. We're not talking about content providers here. As a matter of fact, Zuckerberg and his uh, ilk have all admitted they are basically more conduits for information than content creators. If they, con if they were content creators, they'd be like newspapers, like true publishers, and then I would respect their right uh, to uh, voice any opinion that they create. But they're not. They're using they already art. can. I yeah. mean, they, they can, you know, sure. Dorsey can tweet whatever he wants. Zuckerberg, yeah. no yeah. one's restricting what they can say, like the fairness started. Which, that's a really red herring. I mean, no one is restricting. Broadcasters were restricted in what they could say because they had to, as you pointed out, have the other side. No one is restricting Dorsey from saying whatever he'd like. And if I could get back to what Eric was saying, which is, I think, at the nub of the argument and it's sort of um, an unfortunate elision in the discussion. Um, 
Section 230 does not protect the editorial judgments of the platforms. That's simply not true. It protects the third party speech of individuals who post on the platform. So in other words, Facebook is not liable for the horrible things that you know, Eric will write about me in his blog. Um, Eric is. Um, but that doesn't mean that 230 gives liability for Facebook's own editorial judgment. Um, and there's this tremendous sort of hypocrisy of the, um, of, of, of the big tech platforms here. Because on one hand, they say, oh, we want Section 230's protection, which is protection for other people's speech. Oh, at the same time, we want First Amendment rights to be our own speakers when we moderate. And that's really the point. Um, Section 230 doesn't, except Section 230C1 doesn't give um, protection for the moderating decisions of the platforms. Section C2 does, and that has very specific purposes having to do with pornography and protecting children. It, doesn't, it does not give them the right to essentially impose their political views. And getting back to your point, that's exactly what they're doing, and everybody knows that's what they're doing. Um, you know, the um, study, I mean, the terms that they use, such as hate speech, nobody really knows what what that means. It's a broad, open term that they're allowed to use to import their own ideology. Um, the, the work of Richard Hanania um, shows that of the deplatformed individuals, yes, I, I don't think that people, um, you know, Richard Spencer probably should not be on Twitter that much. It's not a good thing. But neither should his analogs on the left. Um, you know, given, well, you're from the Soviet Union, given, you know, the, the Black Book of Communism, I mean, arguably Bernie Sanders' entire campaign should be taken off Twitter. So, um, if if you're going to apply that standard. So, I mean, you know, th that is not what Section 230 allows. Um, it doesn't give them legal liability. Now, if a platform wants to do that, fine, let them. It's a free country. But they should be open to antitrust scrutiny. They should be open to contract. They should open, be open to consumer fraud. Because Zuckerberg gets up to gets up on the Senate and says, oh, we're an open forum for all sorts of speech. Dorsey says, we are you know, the free speech wing of the free speech party. But then when they, in fact, you know, say, come to our platforms, invest your livelihood, put everything that you want on, on it, and then they say, ah, too bad, so sad. We were fooling you. Um, more the fools you, we're going to now cut you off and censor you. That's, that's not very, that, that's a violation of all sorts of contract laws, and they're using 230 to hide behind so that. The, so the Ninth Circuit just said in the Prager U that uh, Julian Manton versus Google that um, actually them getting up in front of Congress and saying they're committed to free speech or that they're a neutral public forum doesn't actually mean they're open to all sorts of liability. That's what they, uh, the, 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 the Ninth it doesn't make them. It doesn't make them into a public forum, but it didn't say that they're free from contractual obligations or promissory estoppel. No, they said, uh, so they, they, they talked about the Lantham Act. I can send you the highlights. Okay. So, so let's, let's address one of the, um, the points that was made in that litigation, which is Prager complained that a certain percentage of their uh, videos had been flagged so that if you had a child uh, protective uh, setting turned on, um, that these would not uh, be, be featured um, to those that, that relatively small percentage of the audience. Uh, Prager thought this was evidence that uh, conservatives were being uh, uh, disfavored. Um, Google pointed out that, in fact, a significantly larger percentage of videos at various uh, progressive news uh, channels uh, were also similarly marked, and there wasn't, um, it didn't seem to be evidence that uh, Prager was any sort of worse off uh, in this respect than any number of other uh, channels with different political orientations. Um, so you know, there's no doubt that there are cases where um, you know, 
you might take issue with a particular decision to flag a video. Um, but we've been looking sort of at, at, at um, right, at the subset of conservative cases where, yeah, someone, cons uh, a conservative speaker uh, was treated in a way that you could argue, uh, you know, might be unwise. Um, but to actually know that there's a problem of bias as perhaps uh, opposed to a problem of casting the net too wide, uh, we'd have to know that conservatives in particular um, are being treated this way. Is there, uh, you know, is there a reason to think that that's the case? Well, um, I, first of all, the big platforms aren't really releasing the data. And I think that's very interesting that they're not. I mean, I, I teach electronic discovery. You know, if you're not going to come forth with the evidence that's sanctionable and the court can order a presumed uh, factual judgment. Um, if this is an important issue, the big, you know, and, um, I think the big tech companies should come up and to say what's really going on, and they haven't been. I think that's a problem. Um, so it, to me, that colors all of their claims about lack of bias. Um, can we go to, um, I mean, to me, if, if Facebook wants to be the most biased entity in the world, it's fine, it's a free country, they have First Amendment right to do it. But they shouldn't be able to say, oh, Section 230 protects us in all of our decisions, whether in antitrust, whether in contract, whether in consumer fraud, and that's what they're doing. And to take the point of bias, uh, and I, I don't want to continue like this, but um, I, for disclosure, I, I represent Megan Murphy, who is currently suing Twitter. Um, uh, for being deplatformed. And Megan Murphy is a feminist activist living in Vancouver, um, uh, Canada. And she was deplatformed for what's called dead naming, um, for calling um, an individual from uh, a sex opposite to what he or she claims to be. Um, and this individual, um, Yaniv or Jessica, um, uh, Jonathan or Jessica Yaniv, um, was a, a, a transsexual activist who would go into um, beauty salons and demand to get a, a, a bikini wax. Now, his behavior was criticized by the, um, the British Columbia um, I don't know, Commission on, on Human Rights for essentially being racist, anti-immigrant, because these poor women, working women, who he was, claim, who he was bringing suits against for refusing to bikini wax him. And um, uh, they, of course, didn't want to. And many of them were immigrants, women of color, um, working women. Um, he was dragging them into court. Um, and so um, and, and his behavior was, was duly criticized by the Canadian authorities. Um, and, all Megan Murphy did was say the same thing. She said, look, this is not, this individual is not a woman, he's a man. And for that, she was dead named. Now, I think that's bias. I think this is a controversial public issue. I mean, as, 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 as um, um, the recent legislation in Connecticut shows where the question of whether transsexuals can be in women's sports, this is a basic public issue um, that people have different sides on. And up, oh, Twitter picked one side. And uh, you know they can't say that they're not biased when they're actually cutting down public discussion on this very important issue. Julian, if I could just jump back to your question about are conservatives being picked on? Um, we now have a federal agency, the Federal Communications Commission, when they issued their Restoring Internet Freedom Order, they spent a page and a half of just footnotes supporting their statement that of all the entities out there, Internet service providers, the big telecom companies that give you access you know, to the internet highway, they're not the ones censoring. They said, in fact, it's the what they call edge providers, the Silicon Valley uh, group, uh, like Amazon and Facebook and, and Google, are the ones doing it. And they, they 
listed at least 11 articles in the months just prior to the order, and the majority of those were conservatives. So I think now the, the balance of proof, the burden of proof is now on those who say there is not. But even if there isn't an anti-conservative or anti-Christian or anti-traditional value bias, even if that was not the case, if there was viewpoint censorship going on at all, I think we need to return to some, and I, and I think one of you gentlemen, I can't remember who it was, suggested a national standard of uh, appropriate conduct. Well, I think the First Amendment's already done that for us with certain tweaking. I know we don't, aren't talking about state actors here, but if they want the benefit of a special immunity under 230, then to whom much is given, much is expected. They need to then hew closer to those First Amendment values that, by the way, that's, that's democratizing this process rather than relegating it to the private, uh, private uh, glass enclosed castles out there in Silicon Valley. I like how it's very smart maneuvering of saying First Amendment values and not the First Amendment. Because if it was just the First Amendment applying to private platforms, it would allow pornography, violence, all the things we don't want our kids and ourselves to see. But you say First Amendment values, which basically can translate to things that I as a conservative want to see and things that I don't want to see i.e. discussion about transgender issues, which I don't want to get into, and I don't want to comment on that case. But it's it's very interesting uh, way to play the refs, um, especially because I'm sorry, the, play the, I, the refs. Oh, sorry, the that's my accent. Uh, uh, uh. Um, uh, which, by the way, comes uh, because I was born and I grew up in Russia, and I went to college in Russia, and I saw the government very fast recognizing that all the opposition was organizing and speaking on digital platforms. And you know what tools they used and what language they used? The same one Hollies and Cruises of the world are proposing right now. So I'm here as a cautionary tale of suppressed speech online in Russia. And if you think that American democratic institutions can stand on their own, unfortunately they can't. We see the weight on them already. And I also want to ask uh, my respected colleagues if they would be OK putting all these things in place, and then for President Sanders, or President Warren, or President Biden in how many years or soon, coming to power and having those tools in their pocket. Because then who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn to the Southern Poverty Law Center in uh, asking, who do you think is hate speech speakers? And then they're going to. You mean like they are right now? I mean, and then they're yeah, going to uh, use Amazon's the government using, tools. Amazon's using that list to strike, uh, for instance, a, a book of a, a former but lesbian. Amazon is a, a former lesbian company. who has now come out Last of her lesbian lifestyle. She said, I found Christ. This is the change of my life. And they took the book off because they said it's intolerant. Is now, the book still sold anywhere well, else in the world? not on Amazon. It isn't. And they control about they 50% a, of all the book sales now They don't have a constitutional right to be sold on Amazon. Yeah, but, but also there's this weird you know, argumentum ad putum um, that I, I, I mean, I reject. Um, Argument to you know Vladimir Putin. Um, There's a Latin there, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is that if we have these you know sort of mild non-discrimination requirements of let's say that um, Senator That's Josh Hawley suggested um, that somehow the world is going to end, but they exist right now. I mean, a telephone companies can't deny you a telephone um, due to your uh, political views or religious views. Um, telegraph companies existed for a century with these discrimination anti-discrimination rules. These are, as, as you point out, these are First Amendment principles that were incorporated in our regulation of communications for centuries. And that's um, why we have the, 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 the office. The 
office can't, the post office can't discriminate it. These sort of. So you want to monopolize the platform? No, Sounds no, like no, it. No, I, I, what I'm saying They're is. They're already monopolies, so they I, don't I, need I, any well, help. What I'm saying <laughs> is these anti discrimination principles have existed for centuries in this country um, in the phone service, in the mail service, in the telegraph service, to some degree in cable access. And yet, remarkably, the democracy has survived and we haven't fallen into some sort of, you know, Sinister dictatorship. The Professor Goldman, I know you've been you've been you've been looking like you're you're itching to to uh, uh, interject. Let the uh, food fight takes care of itself first. Um, I'm sorry to be the language police, but I do want to mention a couple of terms that again are being used in ways that I think ultimately are designed to distract. Um, first, uh, one of my co-panelists has used the term censorship, and I, I just have to remind everybody: censorship is an action that governments take. If we are not talking about state action, then we're not talking about censorship. What we are talking about, anytime you hear the word censorship, is the editorial discretion of a service to decide what content to publish. So whenever you hear censorship, think editorial discretion and see if that changes your views. Um, unless you're talking state action, but we aren't. Um, the other is this, this, this notion about distinctions between publishing speech and distributing speech. I don't really understand exactly what that means. Um, I think that in the modern era, I don't really know that we can even make such distinctions. But whatever distributing <coughs> speech means, that's not what the services we're talking about here are doing. They are literally helping users author content and then helping those users publish their content to their audiences. So whenever we're talking about distributing speech, whatever that might mean, I really think we're talking about publishing content. That takes us to places that we should be fairly familiar with. Now, 15 minutes ago, Julian, you asked the question, um, do we have evidence that PragerU was subject to bias? Well, actually, in the case, we did get that evidence that was introduced to show some of the other people who were subject to more severe restrictions on the availability of their content to kids. That's all that, uh, that YouTube had done was to put certain uh, content of uh, PragerU behind uh, a, basically a, 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 um, a kid firewall. Um, and uh, the answer was that there were a number of legitimate uh, publishers who are subject to substantially greater restrictions on their content being put behind that uh, the age gate, and uh, that some of those might have been deemed left-leaning, whatever that might mean. So we actually did get evidence in that case that PragerU was not being systematically discriminated against compared to what the general systematic uh, editorial discretion that YouTube was uh, engaged in as part of its ordinary uh, uh, services of publishing third-party content. So none of the things that Josh Hawley has proposed are mild. I just want to put that out there. From uh, restricting uh, use of internet per person per hour per day to creating a ministry of truth that's going to certify who's politically neutral or not. Um, that's just not, not feasible, I think. And also, there, there's a very huge difference between a telegraph and a telecom company and a platform. Um, and Section 230 doesn't just protect the big ones, even though we've been talking about them. It also protects smaller ones, tiny ones. It protects Pinterest and The Knot, a wedding website for men in the room. Um, that You see how I did a gender thing, which probably would be questionable by Twitter? Um, uh, the Knot and uh, Pinterest decided to suppress plantation wedding content. Now, I'm sure there are some wonderful people in the South who still would want a plantation wedding and would go to another website uh, for that information. But that's the decision they made. Facebook, Twitter, uh, also Pinterest, uh, I believe, also have made a decision to not promote anti-vaxxing content. Great idea. Section 230 allows all of that. So first of all, Section 230 applies to all the platforms. It applies to a university professor having his own just little website where he posts his work. And probably, if you're like many university pro uh, professors, 
has a comment section uh, that some random people can start selling drugs on uh, from being liable. There are all these things that happen in the internet ecosystem that are already, be, already being distur distribu disturbed. I'm sorry, a lot of coffee this morning. Uh, they're being uh, really shaken up by just even the suggestion and this pressure on the platform. Well, which is why, uh, Ash, just speaking for myself personally, I'm not in favor of aggrandizing and enlarging the federal government, creating new bureaus, even enlarging the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which probably would be the one the agency that had jurisdiction, if any, does. Uh, I'm, I'm not in favor of that. I'd simply think that we take the big tech, big companies, and, 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 and the proof is in. I mean, when Google is handling 95% of all the search activity in the, in the planet. Can we break up Sinclair? No, 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 just a minute. If, if, we, if we have one monopolist, okay, and then we have another three or four, and then everyone multiple tiers down, and the, and the data shows this. You're describing shouldn't Sinclair. We, shouldn't we remove that section? Well, Sinclair doesn't have a Section 230 immunity. If they did, I might consider that. But the Section they 230 immunity should, 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 be, should be applied as a benefit, special benefit to those monopolistic companies, information platforms, only if they hew to the First Amendment principles that otherwise would apply to private actors with a certain amount of deference to the computer world and the compl uh, complications of you know, mass uh, content moderation. I'm willing to give them deference, but they have to show some governing standard. Right now, Facebook is the only one who said, we're going to have an independent review appeal system. We're going to have some so-called experts meet in a cabal somewhere secretly, and then they'll be the appeal review board for people. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever tried to appeal. I have on behalf of my clients at Facebook and Google. It is a, it is a labyrinth of, of nightmare after nightmare to try to reach a human being who will actually respond and give you the answer to your question of why am I blocked. So their answer is meet in a private room and some people who have no first principles of governance will use their own private opinions and values. I'd rather have the founders and the Supreme Court justices, all nine of them, and their interpretations guide the big monopoly companies if they want the benefit of Section 230. Did you have a? A couple of things I wanted to note. Um, the, uh, the idea that Google or Facebook are monopolists uh, really requires some very narrow thinking about how they actually operate. No question that they play key roles in being internet on-ramps. Um, but for example, uh, in Google's case, uh, they have a large percentage of uh, keyword-driven searches against algorithmically generated databases, which is one way that people search. And there's lots of other ways that people search. So for example, if we do a voice search, that's going to go into a completely different bucket. And that's a trade-off. If you see what happens at our home, our kids use Alexa far more than they use Google uh, when they're at home. Um, so in order to really get to even the monopolist question, we have to be thoughtful about what exactly is the boundaries of um, uh, the competition. But let's assume that both Google and Facebook were monopolists. I'll remind this audience, though you probably don't need it, uh, that in the Miami Herald versus Tornillo case in the mid-1970s, the court was confronted with situations where newspapers had local monopolies over their marketplaces. So uh, the Miami Herald was the dominant uh, daily newspaper in that marketplace. There was no real competition. And the court said the First Amendment protects Miami Herald's editorial discretion even if it has a monopoly in its local market. So the monopoly point doesn't really change the question. 
The question is, can we circumscribe the editorial discretion of publishers of third-party content? And the monopoly argument doesn't, doesn't change the answer. The answer is no. So I, I want to probe a little bit what, what your ideal world looks like. Because if we take seriously you know, the idea of a First Amendment standard, um, then it seems to me that we've learned the First Amendment protects a number of things, including you know, sort of straight up Nazi advocacy, including uh, you know, nudity and, and uh, other things that um, you know, fall us short of, of, of the line of a scene, but the right, uh, anti-vax speech, um, uh, you know, use of uh, racial or sexual uh, slurs that most of us probably don't want to be uh, current in what? Terrorist content. Terrorist content to a Good certain extent. Good pornography. That's the one um, you get. Oh, that one's well, not, that's not covered by the First Amendment. But so, look, there's a range of things that are protected by the First Amendment that I think many people are happy, um, that are in some way disfavored on widely used platforms. Um, to the extent that it sounds like mostly people are okay with the idea that, you know, Twitter or Facebook, YouTube might say, uh, well, we're not going to host a video with nudity. We're not going to host you uh, using the N-word abusively. Um, and, you know, so we're okay with a certain set of these. Um, they think, presumably, that within the same camp of sort of um, objectionable behavior is included things like insisting on uh, male pronouns for a trans woman. Um, you disagree, but if not them, what's the mechanism by which we decide which of these moderation practices is acceptable and which represents bias as opposed to just a, um, a different view when judgment calls need to be made? Well, first of all, I mean, there, there are two layers of, of um, two layers to the question. One is, should Section 230 give the platform's immunity for all of their moderation decisions that aren't based on reasons specified in Section um, uh, 230C2? And I know that's a little bit uh, lawyerish. But it um, talks about objectionable content. Yeah, right. In the context of um, the, com the Comstock um, lewd, lascivious, sexual nature things. And virtually every court that has looked at them has read it pursuant to A.S. Generis and read the objectionable content in that context. And yes, I have no problem with Facebook saying, look, we don't want nudity here, and we will censor, or we will, I'll use that word censor, I'd privately censor. Um, uh, By editorial discussion. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> Privately how about, censor. How about suppression of viewpoint? Yeah, suppression. Uh, <laughs> Exercise and, editorial and, discussion. And, and, no, I mean, because that's really not what they're doing. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but you know, the telephone this company. This isn't sidetracking. The, the, this is the, the core question. The, 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 the well, okay. Well, let's talk about it. The telephone company doesn't um, exercise um, editorial discretion. When, of course they do. They suppress spam. Um, the telephone companies don't suppress spam. Yes, they do. On, on, on a telephone network. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you're right. It does the Spam Act. That's right. Um, uh, no, no, I stand corrected. Um, uh, but um, uh, generally, they don't uh, direct or control whom you can speak to or what you can say. That's something they never do. Um, uh, and so that, um, it, that, that that is a core issue. So, so if they're going to be editorial, if they're going to be censoring for that or privately censoring or whatever. Editorial discretion. But, but, but no, I mean, you don't get to, an editorial discretion means that you are in fact shaping or controlling a content. It's not placing conditions on other people. And this is a silly verbal thing, but we'll agree to disagree and move on on that. Um, but, um, so what would an ideal world look like? Um, one would be um, that 
two, Section 230 would be limited so that you know, the protections are directly for that which Congress intended and nothing else. Um, Adam, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you to be a little more specific because Julian's question is about the First Amendment. The First Amendment says that there's a whole wide range of uh, content that is uh, um, not subject to government restriction. So changing Section 230 doesn't change Julian's question. Well, one second. Um, consistent with the First Amendment, we've always regulated um, telephone companies, telegraph companies, cable systems, um, so as to guarantee a degree of access and openness of, of, of viewpoints. Um, and I would, I think an ideal world um, would not necessarily have every, you know, sadomasochistic or, or sinister um, uh, uh, posting or viewpoint, but it would prevent the most egregious types of political discrimination. But, but how can you exclude that, Adam? Well, well, how can you say that they can eliminate sadomasochism, which is probably protected by the First Amendment, and yet they could uh, uh, not be restricted in other categories? Well, but because the ubiquity of number one of the platform, number two, the Paci remember the Pacifica case dealing with radio and bad words, right? That, they said it was uniquely accessible to children. You talk about uniquely accessible to minors, the internet is, has magnified that accessibility a thousand times. So there is some law on indecency and exposure to children uh, supported by the Pacific and the, even the Fox versus FCC cases, the Supreme Court didn't back off on that principle. So there are ways in which families can feel comfortable having their children protected um, and yet also be able to have a, a plethora of viewpoints that, frankly, we would find disgusting. Look, I think, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm coming from a position as a Christian that believes my message is so important, I'll allow stuff that disgusts me as long as it's not going to be stuff that will infiltrate the thinking and the lives of children so that families don't have uh, tools to prevent that. I'm willing for that trade-off. Not everybody is, but I am. Yeah, and also we live with anti-discrimination regimes in work, in in, um, uh, in, variety, in schools, in virtually every aspect of life we deal with anti-discrimination regimes. And they, they have costs, I concede, but they do tend to work and, and you know, the society doesn't fall apart. Um, I think that, it, you know, if we clarified and coming up with perhaps national standards where we have clear types of, of discrimination, let's say on political views, um, which would be imposed in the same way that the telephone companies have those sort of restrictions. Um, I, I think that would probably be the best situation in a compromised position. So I wanted, before we uh, run out of time, I do want to- my ideal world. Oh, go for it. So, <laughs> so in my ideal questions. world, number one, the telecom company will suppress five calls from my mom every day, uh, <laughs> and I can blame them. Um, Number two is, uh, I mean, I'm a Christian too, uh, but I think it's a very fine line you're trying to thread when you say, oh, wait, so I, I want to allow stuff, but not all the stuff that I don't agree with. Um, and number three is, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me how the political content, right, like the political question, everything is political these days. Movies are political. My decision on how to dress is political. Everything in our society now can have a political tone, even if you don't see it, but in the eye of a beholder it is. Um, so when you regulate the political or you say don't discriminate, those are such vague terms and they're reckless because that's, again, I know you don't want to like go the Putin route, but that's what the Putin route is. And um, 
I think we do the First Amendment route because yes. all these distinctions no. courts have made successfully in our country for centuries. But, but you're saying no, go don't let's go not go all the way First Amendment. Let's go halfway the, oh, no, the half no, no. I like. This point is the First Amendment decisions of the Supreme Court have winnowed down just a very narrow, limited number of exceptions, and they've stuck to that. It's fairly clear, and I don't think it takes a PhD in physics or computer science to apply. Just get some First Amendment lawyer to sit down with Facebook and says, "Here's how we would adapt it to your. We could do it in a day and a half." <laughs> Why don't we do it right now? Afterwards, I'll take you to lunch. We'll do it. Yeah, we'll, there's yeah, a nap right for that. Now. Give me a napkin and a pen. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is right. that on, on that, on that, on that um, optimistic, optimistic assessment, or contentious, let's say, assessment. Um, I, I do want to leave some time to have questions from uh, the audience and from people at home. Uh, if uh, you want to, if you're on Twitter and want to use the hashtag Cato Technology, uh, I uh, have a, a little device here that will allow me to uh, forward questions. Uh, we are. Uh, because of just sort of contagion concerns, uh, going to uh, forego the usual uh, microphones being passed around. So if you have a question you'd like to ask from the audience, um, please just stand up and I'll repeat the question, just so uh, speak loudly. Um, here. So the question, uh, for those who are uh, viewing at home, concerns whether perhaps some of the uh, cases that have dealt with the applicability of 230 um, have really been focusing on the wrong section. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, you go first. Um, so section 230C1, I always summarize as saying it protects uh, services' decisions to publish content or to leave content up. And section 230C2 protects uh, services' decisions to um, remove content or filter content. Um, and C2, framed that way, actually has always had a fairly small footprint um, because the liability risks associated with removing or filtering content are actually much smaller than they are with the leave up decisions. Um, you know, uh, Professor Kandu made some claims about uh, how the courts have been uh, misinterpreting Section 230C1. I don't know what to say except there are hundreds of judges who have disagreed with him. And I, I don't think I, I don't think there's anything more. They're all out there. There's yeah. 900 plus opinions. Uh, okay. We have, we have f from uh, yeah yeah. If I could just say the answer is yes. Um, uh, I, I, I see C1 a little differently than Eric. Um, C1 is about um, as it says, it, um, no platform shall have publisher and speaker liability for a third party's content. Um, C2 is about. Censorship, private censorship, whatever you want to call Editorial it. Editorial discretion, sir. Private censorship. And, um, and what's interesting about C2, it has a good faith requirement. And you know, I think that if courts would actually impose that so that they could take to the platforms and say, look, are you really being fair in, and, and um, uh, even-handed in this? Because I think that's what Congress intended when it gave them the power to <clears throat> privately censor. So. Yeah, the good, the good faith, by the way, I, I had to scour the, the decisions. I found one case that actually actually addressed it, and then they said it's whatever is in the subjective mind of the content moderator. So in, in essence, the platform always wins. Right. So I want to uh, uh, now turn to the uh, uh, internet questions. We have a question from Jess Myers, who I believe is a, a student of yours at Santa Clara. 
um, uh, who wanted to... Uh, you could, you could tell she, is in, she is in the audience here, so she's got a hack in the system. Um, Say hello, Jeff. So she wanted to ask about, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Partial has suggested that this, the um, sort of this liability uh, safe harbor is something that the biggest company should have to earn. Um, this is not something they're trying to impose on sort of smaller firms. Um, but what does that mean exactly? And it just points out um, Reddit uh, is a company with only about 600 employees, so by some uh, definitions, a small or at least not a huge company, um, but has an enormous user base. So uh, how are you sort of deciding um, which which platforms need to uh, go the extra mile to be entitled to uh, to 230 immunity? That's an excellent question. I, I would, if I were to amend 230, I would not require proof of an actual official monopoly. I think it's enough if they are uh, dominant in their market in, in a way where the, it's a sustained kind of a dominance, uh, and it is clearly and substantially evident uh, by either uh, the lack of competition. As an example, um, I think the closest, um, in, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll quote the, uh, the VP of Global Policy for Facebook who testified that of the six major social media platforms, four of them are owned by Facebook. The, the largest six in the world. Part of TikTok. Yes. Yeah, I That's have. what the next generation is going to be well, on. Well, yeah, you're predicting, and I think that Already remains happened. to be seen. How would you so feel about Wikipedia? Market dominance. How would you feel about Wikipedia? Do you think that they are a dominant player that has a sustained... Oh, no, because they're a content... They, they, they produce... They generate their own content. You see, they don't Excuse take... Me? Now, now, it's a... It's a well, they do. They do. But they collect... That's they the collect entirely that. wrong about how Wikipedia no, no, no. actually works. They, they, it, it is an open platform, but they are in the business of generating content. They're not in the business of distributing our content. We're back to the distribution distinction. I don't well, understand. Well, yeah, it. and I think, look, all I know is, is in the 1500s when the Gutenberg Press came out, within five decades, a thousand printing presses were doing the same thing, producing half a million books. We don't have a thousand Facebooks. And do you remember what the reason. response was by governments? To try and control the printing And John press. Milton exactly was what we are today. By organization. 500 years they later, we're him. doing it again. He said, don't do it, and they let ultimately me, let, me, let me try and squeeze in a very last question uh, here from Stephanie before we uh, adjourn for lunch. Courtney, Courtney sorry. Okay, don't worry. Uh, Courtney Rash, McKinney, Tech Journalist. We've talked a lot about, like, let's take down content, let's not take down content, how we make those decisions. Um, but what about looking at alternatives that might get to some of the problems that, that we're thinking about and solutions, for example, um, requiring that these companies provide auditable data. So I think there was a very good point um, made by um, Ash, is it? Yes. Uh, that, you know, a lot of anecdotes can be connected to create a picture. That's a great quote. So what we need is more data. So are, are there any initiatives in Congress or that you guys are supporting to require that companies provide data so that we can audit content takedown decisions? The reason we're interested in this is because we see journalistic content getting caught up in the effort to counter violent extremism, to you know, combat whatever the latest issue du jour is. So I'd be really interested in you know if you're you know requiring data to be available to independent researchers or regulators or we're at Cato. So is, we is, haven't is, said. Just to repeat, the, is, is, is transparency a partial solution for those? We're at Cato. We haven't even said the word free market. I'm honestly surprised we haven't. Um, I think the pressure that the market creates on these companies is actually pushing them toward, towards transparency. And there are a lot of initiatives because trans, I agree with you. Like knowing more about how these decisions are made is not a bad thing. Agreed. And Agreed. Um, kind of giving our feedback as a society, and then letting the private companies decide on 
Like, do they want to leave out all the conservatives? I don't think they do, because that's half of who uses their platform. Conservatives are the ones who gained so much power on social media and got more reach. Well, I, I, I hate to pull the, the law professor thing, but in an upcoming law review article, I argue. Um, <laughs> but you should uh, all read. Yeah, yeah right, right. Um, but um, actually, uh, under the old network neutrality orders, um, there's a very good argument that the FCC right now could order disclosure of these platforms. They haven't. I don't think they would because, you know, you could imagine all the lobbyists in these cities, you know, self-emulating, but emulating. But yes, I think that there's a good argument that the FCC or FTC could do it right now. Okay, and very briefly before we yeah, adjourn. Um, in general, I think we all would favor transparency, giving us more information in order to make better decisions. Um, a couple of things, though. One, I wouldn't make Section 230 conditioned on it, which has generally been the way that Congress is trying to play some bait and switch. But more importantly, I think we have to ask, um, can we do the kind of transparency you want and still comply with other privacy considerations, as well as will it be an incursion into the First Amendment editorial discretions that companies are making to basically force them to try and explain and account for the calls that they made? We don't require that in newspapers. I don't think we ever could. All right. And on that note, I know we could keep going on this for quite a while, but uh, I want you to join me, please, in thanking our wonderful panelists.